Well, if you have your handouts in front of you, it is no surprise that the title of my message this evening is The Surpassing Grace of God. And tonight in our survey through the Bible, we find ourselves in the most well-known of the minor prophets, that is, Jonah. And the book of Jonah, though referred to as a prophetic book, is in fact, it lies in stark contrast to all the other prophetic books. It's mainly a narrative, has one line in it in chapter 3 of actual prophecy. Everything else we glean from is, is the interactions between God and Jonah. Some of you may recall from your younger years studying flannel graphs in Sunday school, there's some pretty miraculous circumstances that take place in this book. But much to the detriment of the reader, that's usually all that's gleaned from Jonah. You know, as we were kids, we were won over by our imagination, thinking of the ship bending and breaking over the crashing waves of the sea until at last Jonah was thrown overboard into the dark depths only to then be swallowed by this enormous, mysterious sea creature. But before we get there, we must first realign our thinking when it comes to this book. That we must live in the meat of the word to understand past the elementary principles, past the milk of the, milk of the word, as, as the author of Hebrews puts it. That's our calling as scholars, as children of God. We must set out to understand the reason for Jonah. Now, having said that, let's consider a different prophet. Let's look at Jeremiah. We've already been over Jeremiah, right? Known as the weeping prophet, Jeremiah was tasked with the immense responsibility of calling all of Judah to repentance. Beginning at an early age, he was petitioned by God to herald the truth to this idolatrous Judah and their coming judgment. And Judah was so wicked, so lost in her ways, that Jeremiah 7.27, God says, You shall speak all these words to them, but they will not listen to you. You shall call to them, but they will not answer you. You shall say to them, This is the nation that did not obey the voice of their Lord, of the Lord their God, or accept correction. Truth has perished and has been cut off from their mouth. Now, Jeremiah would live out his days fulfilling this prophecy, crying out for the repentance of his kinsmen, but being rejected and scorned at every turn. The grace of God had moved from Israel, and now the wrath of God was upon them. Now, witnessing the downfall of his home, Jeremiah shows the abundance of his love and his compassion. Jeremiah 9.1, he says, Oh, that my head were waters. In my eyes a fountain of tears that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. A man devoted to fulfilling his ministry to God despite the harshest of circumstances, showing unending compassion, unending love for the people he's preaching to in light of their unrepentance. Well, it's here that we begin with our stark contrast of our focus on Jonah tonight. Using the knowledge we already ha have of the man, we see him as the antithesis of Jeremiah. Jonah was not sold out for the ministry of the Lord. He was not loving or compassionate to his audience. In fact, he wanted to see their judgment come in place of their repentance. 
So what was the difference? What distinguished these two gentlemen? Why is it that a godly, compassionate, devout man such as Jeremiah would spend his whole life preaching to an idolatrous, unrepentant people with no conversion, no winning over of the nation? And at the same tight or, in, or at the same time or in the same light, Jonah, a man by all accounts who was the worst missionary in all of Scripture, would proclaim the impending wrath of God on, on the mightiest nation in the world. And they would humble and repent before, humble themselves and repent before Yahweh. It can only be the grace of God. In Jeremiah's day, God's saving grace had moved from Israel, and they now faced the just wrath, whereas in Jonah's day, God's favor showed on the Ninevites, drawing them to repentance by his grace. It's the Old Testament example of Christ's words to the hostile Jews in John 6:44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. The Israelites of Jeremiah's day had spurned God to the point of complete abandon. This was the ultimate fulfillment of God's warning to Moses. In Deuteronomy 31, 16 through 18, he warns Moses that Israel would follow after vain idols, and that God would hide his face from them as a consequence. And without God, the Israelites face, or the Israelites face certain death in reality of Paul's, uh, Paul's message in 1 Corinthians 2.14. He says, but a natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. This was the sentence of the Israelites without the grace of God. So salvation, whether it is external or internal, whether it is temporary or eternal, toward a nation or toward the heart of one individual, it must be introduced, carried out, and concluded by the grace of Almighty God. The book of Jonah is bursting at the seams with evidence of this surpassing grace. And as such, tonight it is necessary to consider four characteristics of divine grace that you must identify so that you can rightly distinguish God's work in your life. Four characteristics of divine grace to identify that you might distinguish God's work in your life. As we address these different characteristics of his grace, I hope it becomes evident that much like the rest of God's attributes, these, these uh, facets of his grace are always being employed, always intertwined, always weaving together towards the express purpose of his glory and of our good. First characteristic of his grace is that of his admonishing grace. God's admonishing grace. Please turn with me to the first chapter of Jonah, if you have not already. Verse 1 The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. And one of the most difficult aspects of any believer to comprehend about the grace of God is this discernment of admonishment or, or discipline. In the, 21st century, in, in the 21st century, we have all but disassociated ourselves from God's admonishment, especially when it comes to grace. The two are complete opposites in our minds. For example... 
Within these walls, I can speak to you pretty openly about the way we discipline our children. And most of you would affirm, if you don't, you'd probably keep that to yourselves. Nonetheless, I could walk out those doors and down the street, and the first person I'd come across would likely not be so affirming. Why is that? In Jonah's day, 8th century B.C., he would have been familiar with God's instruction on disciplining a child. Proverbs 23, 13 and 14 say, Do not hold back discipline from the child. Although you strike him with the rod, he will not die. You shall strike him with the rod and rescue his soul from Sheol. You say, well, that seems kind of extreme, right? Many of you are in college. You're not married. You don't have kids. Maybe you're looking at some of the leader's kids, and you're like, man, who in their right mind would discipline that adorable baby girl? That little bundle of depravity. God would. God commands us to discipline our kids as an act of mercy, as a sign of grace. In the Old Testament, if there was a child who was consistently disobedient, consistently lazy and stubborn, God sentenced them to death. Deuteronomy 21, verses 20 and 21, speaking of the parents, he says, They shall say to the elders of a city, This son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey us. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of his city shall stone him to death. So you shall remove the evil from your midst, and all Israel will hear of it in fear. Now we understand the purpose of that was to purge Israel of the wickedness and the disobedience. How grateful are we that that is not today? Nonetheless, it's a difficult passage to wrap our minds around. In a time, in, in, in a culture where our nation allows three-year-olds to run their lives, our families in America are so, so dissolved, so corrupt, that they're allowing these toddlers to decide to, to change their gender at the drop of a hat as if they're changing an outfit. We're living in the consequences of an undisciplined, godless society who does not fear the Lord. The New Testament speaks the importance of discipline, of admonishment from the hand of God. Hebrews 12, verses 5 through 8, the author writes, And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. It is the act of discipline that is meant to bring a child of God to their knees in recognition of their sin. So important is it that it is a sign of true faith. Now, in our neighborhood, we have this very sweet couple that live just across the street. They have uh, two of the most rambunctious boys I've ever met in my life. One of them, on multiple occasions, has watched his father go out the door and drive down the road to work, and five-year-old runs down the street after him. Now, would it be right for me to run after the boy and to bring him back to the house and to put the fear of God in him? Absolutely not. He's not my son. But when my son disregards all instruction that he's ever had, which, I mean, with toddlers is a regular practice, 
and he runs into the middle of the street almost getting hit by a car. It is my God-given responsibility to discipline him. And I love him. I don't, I don't cherish disciplining him, but I know that if I refuse to do so, that one day the car won't miss. We are to admonish our children to spare them from sin's effect, just as God admonishes us when we sin to spare us from, from heaping judgment on our own heads. You're saying that's all well and good, but what on earth does that have to do with the first verse of Jonah? Well, it is in this first verse that we see God's first example of admonishing grace. Grace in that he did not cut them off, Israel, at the very moment they rebelled, but he rebuked them in the evangelism of their enemy. Verse 1 is God's admonishment of a nation. For a little background, Jonah, he ministered to Nineveh sometime around 780 B.C., 760 B.C. And he would have been a contemporary of Amos, if not a little ahead of his time. He lived during the reign of Jeroboam II, who had been blessed by God, expanding the borders of Israel as far as they had been for the past 150 years. And it was despite this blessing from God that Israel still showed their allegiance to the pagan gods of the land, that they worshipped the idols of their fathers. They had all but disassociated themselves from the name of Yahweh. And this was the first reason for God's admonishment toward Israel, because they were unfaithful to God. The city Jonah was called to was Nineveh. And in Jonah's time, there was one superpower in the world, which is Assyria, if you remember from, from Amos and all the other prophets we've been over thus far. And in Jonah's time, Assyria's capital was Nineveh, this powerhouse of a city. It had for many centuries been the hub for idolatry and sexual morality in the region. Not only that, but the Assyrians would constantly form night raids, regularly pillaging, raping, and attacking the Israelite nation. There was no love for any Gentile in the day of Jonah, but Assyria, in the eyes of Jonah, in the eyes of the rest of the Jews, was the bottom of the barrel, the most depraved, the most wicked. When God commanded Jonah to cry against this city, it was unthinkable. Why would I go and preach a message of salvation to the enemy of Yahweh and to his people? The Israelites had, gone, had grown so wicked, so vile, despite having the word of God consistently given to them through the prophets, that this was to shame the Jews. To shame the Jews that God sent Jonah to their enemies to preach a message of salvation. Even more so, what was Israel's purpose? Given by Isaiah in Isaiah 43, 8-10, their purpose was to witness, to proclaim the one true God. Verse 8 of Isaiah 43, Bring out the people who are blind, even though they have eyes, and the deaf, even though they have ears. All the nations have gathered together so that the peoples may be assembled. Whom among them can declare this and proclaim to us the former things? Let them present their witnesses that they may be justified, or let them hear and say, It is true, you are my witnesses, declares the Lord. In MacArthur's words, this was God's way of admonishing the Jews by saying, This nation right next door has been, has been ripe for the harvest, but you've been neglecting your very call. And that is the second 
The second reason for God's admonishment is that they were unfaithful to their calling. Upon hearing this command from God, Jonah flees. How foolish, a prophet of God fleeing God. Couldn't expect to get very far. But much like a child who fears the discipline of his father, Jonah refuses to take part. In keeping with the analogy of this petulant child, he does the exact opposite. He runs as far as he can, boards a ship from Joppa to Tarshish, which would have been some 2,000 miles away from Nineveh. Thus came the reproof of the Lord again. Verses 4 through 15, they demonstrate God's admonishment of Jonah, this time in the form of a divinely appointed storm on the seas. So great was this storm. That with Jonah, these hardened sailors who lived on the waters day and night feared for their lives. They called out to their gods. They prayed. They begged. They wept for salvation. All the while, where was Jonah? Verse 5 says, Then the sailors became afraid, and every man cried to his God, and they threw the cargo which was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone below in the hold of the ship, laid down, and fallen sound asleep. Chaos was breaking out on deck, and God's prophet was in a dead sleep below deck. Though not referenced in the New Testament, you can't help but see the contrast between Jonah and our Lord. That Jonah, though asleep, was asleep out of ignorance, not caring about the judgment, the admonishment of God. And Christ, with faith in the Father, Faith in himself. He knew that there was nothing to worry about. Don't be like Jonah. It's obvious from the text that these Gentile pagan worshipers in that moment were more fearful, more responsive responsive to the admonishing hand of God. So unwilling, so unrepentant was Jonah that once the Gentiles, they ascertained who Jonah was, he was a prophet of the living God, the God who made the land and the seas, They asked him, what what should we do to make the sea calm for us? He did not say, I will repent and plead before the Lord. I will pursue the will of my God. No. He said, pick me up and throw me over. The reprimanding grace of God provided an opportunity of repentance. Provided an opportunity for repentance. So where... Where are you tonight? Are you presuming upon the grace of God while you indulge in your sin? Do you think lightly on the discipline of the Lord? Have you who suffered hardship examined your hearts for unrepentant sin? God has provided you with this very opportunity to repent of it. Jonah was foolish. He was blind until he faced near certain death. How far are you willing to go? If you are indeed in sin, unrepentance, how far will you go kicking against the goads before humbling yourself before the cross of Christ? Concerning the sailors, after exhausting all other options, this is exactly what they did. They prayed to God for mercy. They recognized the will of Yahweh. And as soon as Jonah sunk into the sea, the storm ceased. The men on board feared Yahweh greatly. They made sacrifices. 
They understood God was the true God. They repented of their sin through those sacrifices. Meanwhile, sinking deeper and deeper into the depths of the sea, Jonah's defiant heart is silenced. He didn't know he would be saved. He was so unwilling to repent that he'd rather die than be humbled. But in true providential grace, God had other plans. That's the second characteristic that we see here of God's grace. The providential grace of God. And chapter 1, verse 17 picks up, And the Lord appointed great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. It's an old world term, providence, one that you won't hear anywhere, save maybe here amongst scholars of the word. In the words of B.B. Warfield, the principal of Princeton Seminary at the turn of the 20th century, regarding providence, the providence of God, he says, in the infinite wisdom of the Lord of all the earth, each event falls with exact precision into its proper place in the unfolding of his divine plan. Nothing, however small, however strange, occurs without his ordering or without its particular fitness for its place in the working out of his purpose. And the end of all shall be the manifestation of his glory and the accumulation of his praise. Pretty lofty statement, I understand. But that is to say that Jonah, who deserved the judgment of God for refusing the plan of God, has been shown grace through Yahweh's directing of the arrival of this great fish, but not only that, also the repentance of Jonah himself. Chapter 1, verse 17, through chapter 2, verse 1, it shows the Lord provides a fish. The Lord provides a fish. However, verses 2 through 6 must not be missed. For the arrival of this fish, Jonah relays his horrifying experience. As I called out of my distress to the Lord, and he answered me. I cried for help from the depth of Sheol. You heard my voice. For you had cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the current engulfed me. All your breakers and billows passed over me. So I said, I have been expelled from your sight. Nevertheless, I will look again towards your temple. Water encompassed me to the point of death. The great deep engulfed me. Weeds wrapped around my head. I descended to the roots of the mountains. The earth with its bars was around me forever. Seems these five verses, we begin to catch a glimpse. A glimpse of life without the grace of God. How helpless we are without the intervening love of the Lord. Now don't get me wrong, God is sovereign. He has never once for a second let go of the reins, if you will. If he did everything in this universe would cease to be. Rather, he allowed Jonah to feel for a microscopic or for a microscopic level of the consequences of sin for just just a moment. As children, me and me and my siblings, we'd look forward to dinner. (laughs) We just we're four boys in the house. Food was our favorite thing in the world. And so Waiting for my mom to bring lasagna over to the table seemed like, in my young mind, the longest hour of my life. And she'd bring it over, set it down, and she'd warn us, myself being a young, elementary-aged boy, 
You should warn me. You know, don't, don't eat right away. You've got to blow on it. You've got to let it cool off. You've got to wait. And I'd bicker. I'd argue. I'd grumble. And time after time until one point my dad had had enough. He said, if you really wanted that bad, just go ahead and take a bite see what happens. So I did. And it was like shoveling hot lava directly into my mouth. And I didn't taste anything for a week. But that goes to say that it is on a much greater level what Jonah is experiencing here. He fought and fought against the plan of God. And now he was fighting for his life. I assure you, Jonah was not at all graceful descending into the depths. You know, in, in Sunday school, we were taught this is what Jonah wanted. We were given this image of Jack from the Titanic, kind of closing your eyes and accepting your fate and drifting off, and off into the depths. Not true. What does he say? He says he called out in distress. I cried for help. The current engulfed me. The breakers and billows passed over me. I descended to the roots of the mountains. Weeds were wrapped around my head. Jonah was fighting amongst the crashing waves with every fiber of his being for just a breath, crying to God for help body being thrashed on the currents of the water, his head being tied up in the seaweed. That is until the Lord showed his providential grace to Jonah. Not in the fish, not yet. Verses 6 and 7, Jonah continues, But you have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. While I was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. Verse 9, but I will sacrifice to you with a voice of thanksgiving that which I have vowed I will repay. Salvation is from the Lord. Many scholars debate whether this was the moment of Jonah's true conversion. As Christ puts it himself in John 3, the, the new birth. Or if instead this was an Old Testament reality of John 14, 26, Christ speaking of the Spirit and speaking to, to us, but through the disciples, he says, he will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all that I say to you. And doing so, reminding Jonah that Yahweh, in Jonah's own words later in chapter 4, is a, uh, is a compassionate and gracious God. Either way, it was clear in Jonah's case that God provides a repentant heart. God provides a repentant heart. He says, I remember the Lord. And you say, what do you mean, Jonah? What do you mean you remember the Lord? You were just crying out for him amongst the waves, and all of a sudden it is that you remember him. Well, it's not to say that he just remember him, remembered him and God saved him. Now, this word remembered in the Hebrew is almost exclusively reserved for the basis of performing some action. That is to say that Jonah remembered Yahweh in such a way that it led him to repentance. Therefore, the same action the Spirit speaks of in John 14, 26 to the disciples, the same, th the same thing he does in your heart as a believer, if you are indeed, drawing you to repentance, drawing you to obedience by remembering his word and remembering who he is and what he's done for you, is the same thing he did to Jonah 2,800 years ago in the midst of the sea. Causes you to remember his word. And after his, his dip in the sea, his trip in the belly of the fish, God commands this creature to vomit Jonah out on the dry ground. And again, a common misconception here, he was not dropped off at Nineveh's doorstep. Rather, after doing some 
research, the closest he could have been to Nineveh and still be on the Mediterranean shoreline would have been a seven and a half days walk without stopping. So he still had some, some admonishment to, to prolong. But carrying on, nonetheless, verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I am going to tell you. So Jonah arose, and he went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. So here we have the beginning of chapter 3. What do we know about Nineveh? We've already discussed their paganism, their animosity toward the Jews. But this city, Nineveh, was considered a great city. Verse 3 says, a three days walk. Could mean a few things. Three days walk could mean that it took three days to walk around the city. In which case, the city would be something like 60 miles in circumference. It could mean that according to local custom, it took you three days to enter a city. One day to greet the local dignitaries and so on and so on. Day two and day three. Or it could just mean it was big enough that Jonah needed to preach three days. Regardless, it's meant to emphasize the point that the city was incredibly powerful, an incredibly important, vast kingdom. Like today's Washington, D.C., London, England, if you could imagine that. Although significantly less in population, about 600,000. Its roots dated all the way back to the end of the flood, the great-grandson of Noah, the grandson of Ham, Nimrod, he had founded the city along with many others. In chapters 10 and 11, we see that not only was this man responsible for many cities, but also the driving force behind the Tower of Babel, the original rebellion against God after the flood. Now chapter 10 Verse 8 and 9 says that this Nimrod was a mighty man, a hunter before the Lord. He was the first of the great men, if you will. According to Jewish tradition, he was said to be a ruthless tyrant. In fact, the origin story, what the Jews believed, of many pagan gods, like Marmaduke and Baal. Think Adolf Hitler, Alexander the Great, Julius Caesar, as but shadows of Nimrod. His city, not unlike his legacy, wicked. But despite this, God would still save them by his grace. Which is the third characteristic. God's saving grace. This picks up in verse 4. Then Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk. And he cried out and said, Yet forty days the Nineveh will be overthrown. Then the people of Nineveh believed in God. One of the most incredible acts of God's saving grace in the Old Testament, given in just a verse and a half in Jonah. In modern society, the term saving grace has been diluted to meaning something trivial. <clears throat> For instance, when my wife and I met, I was by no means tall, still not, nor was I charismatic or the best athlete on the court. But my one saving grace was that my wife had not dated much, so I was able to lock her down pretty fast before she realized there were better options. A saving grace is used as a redeemable quality of a, of a person or a circumstance. But in its original intent, saving grace refers to the act of God saving a people through the atonement of Christ. This, is, this differs from common grace. These two commonly contradict each other 
in the minds of mm, faulty theologians anyways. Psalm 148.9 is an example of this. The Lord is good to all and his mercies are over all his works. Common grace to all. Jesus, again, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 44 and 45, he says, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. And God has shown Nineveh, and by extension, all of humanity, common grace. Not just by allowing them to live, but allowing them to enjoy life. Despite the fact that their, their wickedness and, and their hatred towards God is, is an offense to his holiness. However, now he's commissioned Jonah to introduce the saving grace to Nineveh. Again, as an admonishment for the Jews who, who believe that they alone retain the right for saving grace. You might look at back at the verse we just read in verse 4. Notice that there's no, no message of hope. There's no, or repent and be saved. Though it's, a worth, uh, it's, it's worth mentioning this ambiguity of the word used for overthrown in verse 4. It's used as a homonym in Hebrew. A homonym, something that looks the exact same, means something different. Yes, Hebrew word can reference the overthrowing of a monarch or a kingdom, or it can mean to just turn. Much like the word repentance is literally turning from one sin to God. This phrase could be translated, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be turned. In the passive, meaning that this, this external force, God, is turning Nineveh, their hearts and behavior, to God. Now, just to be clear, I agree with the translation in the text. It's supported later on by verse 10, saying that God is relenting concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them. But the irony is that Jonah preached judgment without hope. That Nineveh repented and placed their hope in Yahweh nonetheless. And the result was this alternative interpretation of the phrase, they would not be overthrown, but they would be turned. Hope in place of judgment. It's as if to say that the destiny and the future of the nation was not in the hands of Jonah at all, but always Yahweh. Thus far, God has he's demonstrated the surpassing grace he gives through the admonishment of Israel and Jonah, the providence in Jonah's repentant heart and rescue from the sea, the saving grace in both Jonah and Nineveh's repentance. Every one of these characteristics of his undeserved, unearned favor are linked by the last trait that we discuss here in chapter 4. That is God's forbearing grace. God's forbearing grace. Pick up in verse 1 of chapter 4. But it greatly displeased Jonah and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was not this not what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. The Lord said, Do you have good reason to be angry? 
stop there. Jonah just witnessed a wholesale revival of the most wicked nation of his time. The thing that Jeremiah prayed for, shed blood and tears for. It had been a grace given to this undeserving nation from the mouth of an uncompassionate prophet. His response here, though, is one of unfettered rage. The word used here for anger can be translated in the figurative sense as set ablaze or kindled toward jealousy. God has in his saving grace spared a people from his wrath and Jonah is white hot with jealous anger. It was as if God was saying, if you will not repent, O Israel, then I will call upon your enemies and they will repent and I will bless them. How often have you looked at new at the, excuse me how long, how often have you looked at the news lately how often maybe have you been jealous of your parents or your grandparents generation thinking god's favor was was upon them in economics in politics even national morality you look with longing or maybe even anger thinking well maybe if we just get our man into office Maybe if we can just keep this bill from passing, then it'll be okay. Brothers and sisters, don't be fooled. Our nation is not in the hands of some clumsy politician. It's in the hands of Almighty God. We as a nation, much like Israel in Jonah's day, have completely rebelled against him. And we are now under his judgment. Yahweh's solution was not to encourage Jonah to to sponsor some godly or candidate. His solution was to discipline his people for losing sight of their very purpose. So the next time you find yourself glued to the 6 o'clock news, fearing for your life, gripping to your seat, shut it off. Turn to the Lord and be about your business in the evangelism of the gospel. Back in our text, Yahweh, he had not abandoned his people. We know that. But the immediate generation that Jonah was a part of was under the judgment of God nonetheless. For the previous six or seven hundred years since the time of Moses, Israel was unfaithful to God. They were unfaithful at Mount Sinai. They were unfaithful during the era of the judges. They were unfaithful during the current reign of Jeroboam II. But it was Jonah in his anger who had the audacity to consider God as the one being unfaithful to the Jews. Jonah considered God as unfaithful. In his response, he he plays the part of God's authority. Isn't this what I said was going to happen, God? Didn't I tell you that because of your grace and your compassion that these Assyrians would escape their judgment? He then revisits his earlier sin that he'd already repented for. This is the reason I fled to Tarshish, as if somehow now his sin is justified. How many people in Scripture met their immediate end, met their immediate judgment, more like, at the hands of God upon showing their pride? Both Nebuchadnezzar and Herod, while the words were coming out of their mouth, they received the judgment of God. Why not Jonah? What's the difference? The forbearing grace of God. 
Jonah then went and he, he made a spot for himself east of the city where he would have a clear view of, of Nineveh just in case God changed his mind. Just in case he got to see the fire and brimstone rain down on the Assyrians. And in this, Jonah hopes for God's mutability. That is the tendency to change. I don't know how much you know about theology proper, the study of God, but the immutability of God, immutability of God, is an attribute which God alone possesses. And it is that God is never changing. However, Jonah, he here hoped for the opposite, that God would change his mind in regard to showing grace to the Ninevites. Instead of reckoning the sin toward Jonah, Yahweh once again shows his forbearance towards the prophet. He causes a plant to grow and, and shelter Jonah. And finding quick reprieve from his anger, all of a sudden, Jonah's happy. Verse 6, Jonah was extremely happy. You were just cursing God. And all of a sudden, just a little bit of shade. Man, such short-sightedness. God then appoints a worm to eat the plant and causes the sun to beat down on him the next day. It's the last straw for Jonah. Verses 8 and 9. When the sun came up, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he became faint and begged with all his soul to die, saying, Death is better to me than life. Then God said to Jonah, Do you have good reason to be angry about the plant? And he said, I have good reason to be angry even to death. This is the third time that Jonah's contemplated his own death and his unwillingness to recognize his own sin. Once on the boat, twice in this chapter, but so angry is he with God that he defends his rage. But then God admonishes him one last time, and in it we discover the third wrong view that Jonah gives of, of God. Verse 10, Then the Lord said, You had compassion on the plant for which you did not work, and which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. Should I not have compassion on Nineveh? the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between, between their right and left hand, as well as many animals. Jonah considered God to be unfaithful. He had hoped for God to be mutable. And all along, he had desired for God to be partial. He desired for God to be partial. The Lord shows, verse 10, that the issue is grace. It's always been grace. The lack of grace in Jonah, the abundance of grace in God. You show grace. You show compassion to this plant and yet want me to withhold grace upon a city of 600,000 people, 120,000 of, of which are children who don't know their left from their right. God knows the heart of Jonah. This is exactly what he wants. Be partial, God. Show no mercy to those pagan idolaters. But grant it to Israel instead, because we're your chosen people. What is God's response? He's corrected Jonah. His providence gives him shelter. He is patient with Jonah. All the while, Jonah curses God for the saving grace he shows to the Ninevites. So why is it the outcome of Jeremiah and Jonah were so vastly different? For the third time, I hope you caught it, just grace. It's not to say there was no grace in the book of Jonah, but as the sin of Jonah, or Jeremiah, excuse me, but as the sin of Jonah grew and grew, so did the 
grace of God. As the sin amounted more and more, just as it does in our own lives, we begin to sin more and more and more, we have a clearer view then of God's grace, that it is indeed surpassing. A few points I would like to have you answer for yourselves is do you see the admonishment of God in your life when you sin? Are your seasons of iniquity marked by the chastising grace of God? Then rejoice, for you are a child of God. But if not, meditate on Hebrews 12, 5 through 8. The Lord does not discipline those whom do not belong to him. Contemplate the providential grace of God that you're here this evening. It's not despite all the circumstances that happened tonight that you just barely made it to church. It is in light of them. It is in light of all the circumstances in your life that God has directly caused that you'd be here this evening. Maybe your father got a job here, you relocated, and you started attending countryside. Maybe you're driving down 114, saw the cross on top of the building, and thought, I'll try that. Or maybe you met somebody who currently goes to countryside. They invited you, and this is the first place that you've heard the word of God preached verse by verse. Nonetheless, every single thing that was done to get here tonight was in the will of God, that you might hear what he has to say. Consider that. Not only that, but, but consider the forbearance of God that you're here. We know that the wages of sin is death. We know that we were all once children of wrath, Ephesians 2, 3. And as such, we hated God. Our very existence in, in sin, it's, it's an affront to his holiness. But he gave us grace and that he put up with your sin. He put up with your, your petulance, your, your anger, your hatred, until the point which he called you to repentance. And consider the ultimate act of God's grace through Christ. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, fully man, fully God. He came to earth to live for 33 years perfectly because you and I could not. He then died, beaten, mocked, scorned, spit on, crucified. To die the death that we deserved to die. And what more is that he faced the wrath of God. Now, now many people I meet don't understand what does that mean. How did Jesus face the wrath of God? It wasn't just the whips. It wasn't just the, the crown of thorns or the cross. The wrath of God, number six, gives us some, some background information. Number six is the benediction that God gives to Israel. And, and borrowing from one of Tom's recent sermons, it is the benediction that the high priest was to give on behalf of God to a faithfully obedient Israel. It was the highest form of blessing in the Old Testament. And number six, it goes like this in verse 24, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. And it was on that hill on Golgotha, 2,000 years ago, where for the first time, one individual was worthy of that blessing all in himself. And it was Jesus. And it was him who took the curse 
the greatest curse and the greatest wrath of God for everyone who would ever believe and call on him. And there's this, this pastor who speaks of this hypothetical discussion between the son and the father as if it went like this. The father's response to, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Was the inverse of the benediction. The Lord curse you and forsake you. The Lord turns his face from you and damns you. The Lord pours out his wrath on you and gives you death. There's three days later from the grave, Christ now sits to the right of the power on high as a judge who will justly judge every individual who looks at the cross and the costly death of Christ and scoffs. Consider that. Witness the saving grace that Jesus offers. Repent of your sin and escape the wrath to come. Don't presume upon the grace of God. In the words of, of Lawson, God has drawn his bow of judgment and aimed it at your very heart. So don't boast, don't comfort yourself saying that there's, there's time, there's grace, like Jonah did. But respond in repentance like Nineveh, for his, his forbearance will wane, and afterwards there will be no grace to be found. If you are my brother and my sister here tonight, contemplate the gospel. Let it fill you with thankfulness at the measureless grace of God and rejoice, for by it we are almost home. Let's pray. Father, it is to you that we commit this time together. Lord, allow this message to sink into the deepest crevices of our spirit. May we contemplate your grace and what it costs for you to show us. That every moment, every instance where you've shown us kindness that we did not deserve, love where we showed you hatred, and patience where we did not earn it, it was only by the cost of Jesus Christ's death. Lord, we thank you for the message of the cross, the righteous, the perfect, the eternal, laying down his own life for the wretched, the temporary, the worthless. God, we praise you. Allow us to dwell in the midst of your grace and your love this evening. Allow it to affect our hearts and minds through the power and the will of your spirit. God, allow us to observe, observe Jonah as an example, an example of the petulant Christian who runs from God. May we be like Nineveh in your grace, in your favor. We attribute you all the glory and all the praise and all the honor. Amen.